Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Associate Pastor Ian Mulraney. Genesis 19, verse 30. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine, and then sleep with him, and and preserve our family line through our father. That night, they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, Last night, I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink, again, to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. of today. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For while he stayed in Gerar and there... For a while, sorry. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That, that is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Elimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so they could have children again. 
For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, everybody. I am eager for this message this morning, but I do want to give a caveat at the beginning. Um, Like a lot of things in the Bible, this passage covers some messy aspects of life. Um, If, as we saw in this story right now, there's sexual assault and rape and potential sexual assault. And so just, if anybody is uncomfortable with that, feel free to, you know, no judgment or anything if you need to step out during this message, because we will be talking about biblical times and modern times cases of sexual assault and rape. So... That's just my little caveat at the beginning here. But, um, yeah, life is messy and the Bible is not afraid to go into our mess. So, all right, you can hit that, Kyle. Thank you so much. Okay, so we are continuing our journey with Abraham. um, Looking at his life and the calling God has given him. And this week we titled it Impropriety's Consequences. So... Uh, just a little quick recap of what's been going on. Abraham is a pagan living in Ur of the Chaldeans, and God calls him to move thousands of miles away to a new land that he's going to show him, and he promises him that this is going to be his new home, and that he's going to have lots of descendants, even though he's an old man and he doesn't have kids yet, uh, that him and his wife are going to have children, and they're going to inhabit this land, and it's going to belong to them, and they are going to have this relationship with Yahweh, the one God. Um, and there's some misadventures and good things that happen and all sorts of things. But one of the things that we saw in the last few weeks is God shows up and eats with Abraham and tells Abraham he's going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sins. Um, uh, how they don't take care of the poor, how they are just uh, filled with lust and uh, power dynamics and they don't... Uh, there's just not a care or love found there. And so Abraham says, well, if there's even 10 people, would you spare the city? And God says, yes. And what we see is that there's not 10 righteous people found there. But Abraham has extra concern because his nephew who came with him to the land, his nephew Lot and his family live in Sodom. Um, But because of their righteousness, they're allowed to leave the city and they flee. But Uh, Lot's wife disobeys the angel's commands and she turns around and is turned into a pillar of salt. But him and his uh, two daughters are able to escape the destruction that is behind them. Uh, They go to a town called Zoar, which is where they ask the angels they can go to live. And that brings us to this morning. So the thing I hope that we can take away from today um, overall is this truth. Yeah. That I believe that God stands against evil, and when evil happens, he molds it into good. God stands against evil, and he molds it into good. That there is, evil does not ever get the final say on our lives. So, let's just kind of recap to make sure we understand what 
Rachel just read for us. So there are two stories here, two seemingly separate but connected stories. So the first one is the continuation. It's the epilogue of Lot's life. It's the last we actually get to hear from him. He'll be mentioned in the rest of the Bible, but this is the last narrative piece we get about Lot. Um, so yeah, so what happened with Lot? He and his daughters flee to Zoar, and they're living there, but it says that Lot is afraid. It doesn't specify why. It could be that the people of Zoar are a little suspicious that Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, and Lot and his daughters are the only ones who survived. They're foreigners. They're not from this place. Um, and yet they survived. A little suspicious. But for some reason, Lot chooses not to live in this town, but takes his daughters up into the mountains where they live in the wilderness. And it seems they don't have much contact or association with people or civilization from then on. His daughters, wanting to become mothers and carry on the family line, um, their fiancés were killed in Sodom and Gomorrah. They didn't listen to the angel's warning or Lot's warning and were killed. And so the older daughter comes up with a scheme of how can we have kids and the only person we ever interact with is our dad. Well, we have wine. Let's get him drunk. And when he's drunk, we'll take care of sleeping with him. There's sort of an irony in that if you were here or familiar with the story of Sodom, Lot offers his daughters to the men of Sodom to be raped by them. But in this story, we see that they are actually the ones reaping their own father, coming up with this scheme to get him out of his uh, sober consciousness and ending up having sex with him. That's our first story. <laughs> our second story is back to Abraham and Sarah. If you remember the last scene we saw Abraham, you can hit, thanks Kyle. Um, Abraham, Sarah, and a king named Abimelech, or a ruler. Um, Abimelech is ruling the area of Gerar, which is where Philistia is going to become. Um, it's part of the promised land. Uh, but Abraham moves down there. Throughout our whole story, Abraham has, other than when he went to Egypt, he has dwelt by the great trees of Mamre. And suddenly he decides to move. Um, the last time we saw Abraham, he was looking out over the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, seeing the destruction there. It's possible he believed that Lot and his family had been killed in the destruction. It's possible that whatever the devastation that occurred had made the area too uninhabitable to live for the time being. But we don't know for certain, but Abraham, for the first time, not because of famine or anything, just decides to get up and move his tents to a new area of the Promised Land. And he moves to this region which is ruled over by Abimelech. Um, if you remember when Gary preached about the famine and Abraham going to Egypt, Abraham has this rule that he has with Sarah, which is whenever they're in foreign territory, they tell everybody that they're just siblings. And the fear is that apparently Sarah is supposedly a very attractive 90-year-old woman, and so attractive that Abraham fears that all these rulers, which was custom at the time, would take, want to take her and put them in their harem, and respecting the laws of marriage, they would want to execute Abraham first, so they could then take his wife to be part of their harem. 
Um, that's Abraham's big anxiety and fear, so he lies about his relationship with Sarah. And so what happens, though, is when Abimelech thinks Sarah's sing- single, he takes her as part of his harem anyway, and Abraham just lets this happen. Um, and then there's the strange divine intervention, right? Uh, it seems that the women in Abimelech's household are unable to conceive. We're not quite sure what that looks like, what that means, but there aren't any babies being born or being, uh, and people aren't getting impregnated. And Abimelech, this pagan, receives a dream from God that tells him what he has done is wrong, taking Abraham's wife. And Abimelech actually gets to argue his defense and say, how was I to know that she was this man's wife when what they told me was that they were just brother and sister. And God says that, you know, you're right. Um, That's why I've kept your hands clean. You have a clear conscience. Um, But you have to return her to him. And so they... Abimelech takes Abraham's wife Sarah, gives her back to him, gives him lots of silver and gold to repay for the sin he had committed against him, and then all as well. So, yeah, they're both strange stories uh, that highlight just some irrational and bad choices by some big-name characters in Genesis and... uh, there's a lot of ickiness to it, too, just the sexual impropriety and everything. Um, who do you think, in the big context of Genesis, is a better person, Abraham or Lot? Yeah. <laughs> it is a trick question, Rachel. <laughs> um, well, I just ask because if you were an Israelite hearing this story back in the day, do you know who the Moabites are? Moabites are a neighboring country to you. They're a neighboring people group. And do you know what one of the laws that God gives Moses is about the Moabites? You're not to intermarry. Not to intermarry with them? Moabites are not allowed to enter the temple. Wow. There is strict cultural keep these people away laws as part of their law code about them. And here we see their origin story. Um, being Moab, the father of the Moabites, being the son of the older daughter and her relationships with her father, Lot. And so if you're an Israelite, this could be a chance to say, Abraham, good, Lot, bad, Lot's descendants, bad. Except, if we look at the actual thing, Abraham and Lot have a lot in common. If we look at the Venn diagram of what crosses over. Here, can you bring that next slide up, Kyle? Thank you. All right. So both these stories seem totally disconnected, but there's actually a lot that's in common with them. Abraham and Lot both move away after the destruction of Sodom. And there's fear, it seems, in both of their decisions, particularly about groups of pagan people, people who aren't part of their cultural and family and religious group. Um, You know, Lot and his daughters fear the men of Zoar. Abraham fears Abimelech and his household. And both Abraham and Lot commit incest. A lot of times, you know, people or like commentators and things look at this and say, well, 
Moab was bad because Lot slept with his daughter. But in this very same, or in the next story, how are Abraham and Sarah related? Why does Abraham say, well, it's not really a lie, because what? How are they actually related? Half-sisters. They're half-sisters. Your half-sister is still your sister. And newsflash, God is going to forbid the Israelites from sleeping with their half-sisters in the Mosaic Law. Both of Lot and his daughters and Abraham and Sarah's relationships are actually forbidden by Leviticus, Levitical law. And so there's an unfair way to paint Lot and his daughters just because there's more of an ick there and they actually uh, commit incest. Um, But Isaac is going to be the product of incest too. And in the New Testament, Peter, in 2 Peter, he's going to actually refer to Lot as righteous Lot. That's the nomaker that Lot gets, is righteous Lot. This is just some background that I want you to keep in mind. Um, there's a lot of things to cover in both these stories and dig into, but there's one particular thing one verse that I want us to focus on and talk about because when I read it, it made me go full pause and stop. And I had to chew with it for a little bit because it actually kind of bothered me. And that's this verse. Um, this is verse, chapter 20, verse 6. Then God said to Abimelech in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. The reason this made me pause was because God seems to profess right here that he actually has the power to prevent people from sinning. God, from his own mouth, says... I have kept you from sinning. There's two things I want, like two branches to think about with this. One is this forbids any of us from feeling like we have a superiority or self-righteousness complex. Because if you've lived a clean, sober, good life and you've never uh, had any sexual impropriety, never did drugs, or never cheated or done anything wrong, Maybe that was God the whole time keeping you from doing any of that stuff. And so you don't have the right to look on anybody else and say, you're wrong. Because maybe God has kept you from being exposed to things that would have totally torn your life apart. And so when we are righteous, we have to give credit and thanks to God. But the other thing that bothers me about this verse is this is literally like the argument new atheists make about why God couldn't be real. Because if God is real, and we see how messed up this world is, if we see all the sin and evil that is done, and God has the power to stop sin and he doesn't, what the heck? What the heck? Why does God not intervene more?
God is willing to step in to stop Abimelech from sleeping with Sarah, but not stop Lot's daughters from drugging and raping him. Now, there are counterpoints you could make about free will, and Abimelech had a clear conscience because he didn't know what he was doing was wrong. And God steps in and gives him a warning, but we see that God had held his hand before this to, like, whatever the reason he had brought Sarah into his harem, but it seems God had interfered to make sure they didn't sleep together beforehand. And so that bothers me just in context of this story. And just in this real world, too. Can you go to the next slide? All right. Anybody know who that is? Very famous, very important person. Cheesing up. It's me. <laughs> there I am, cheesing it up. Uh, I'm at like a church choir thing there, I think. Um, probably wouldn't surprise you to know that that's little Ian in the middle, that after school every day, he likes to go hop on his bike first thing and ride up and down the alley, down a big hill on his bicycle, uh, seeing how fast he could go and then going around the block. Probably wouldn't surprise you to know that he coveted the hour a day his parents let him play Nintendo 64 and video games and Mario and all that sort of thing. It might surprise you to know that this little boy is sexually active, though. If not in this picture, just a few months away. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with my story, I had, was sexually abused and molested from the ages of eight through nine. And uh, I actually had to like do a stop when I saw this photo because I was like, no, I couldn't have been that little at the time. But my sisters were like, uh, they're off camera in this picture, and like they look like they're three or four, and I'm four years older than my sisters. And I was like, I was tiny. <laughs> I was small. And God stopped Abimelech from sleeping with Sarah, but he didn't stop my neighbor from sexually abusing me. If God can keep Abimelech from sinning against him, if God can stop Abimelech's hand from touching Sarah in inappropriate ways, then what about Lot and his daughters? What about the people of Sodom? Why couldn't he have stopped Abraham from lying in the first place? What about little Ian? Where was God when sin wrecked people's lives. I don't know why God allows evil to happen. But I bring us back to this point which I've been making since the first week we started Abraham, which is this. Even when we don't see it, God is working for the ultimate good. I really believe that God takes 
our broken realities and forms them into new life. It's not a perfect analogy to be used here, but if you remember a few weeks ago when I was talking about my cat being spayed and neutered, and from his perspective, he's being tortured and taken out of context, surrounded by strangers and enemies and foes, but it was for his good in the end. In the same way, we can't see the full end of how evil things are going to work themselves out or how God is going to redeem them, but if we are Christians, the one hope we have that the world doesn't have is that evil will be redeemed. If God is not real, if Christ did not die, then life just sucks. But if he did, if Christ entered into our brokenness with us and for us, then he knows what suffering is like. He knows what death and the experience of it is. And he is working the salvation of all of us and all of creation to bring us back to the Father. So that way we can be in that perfect harmony again. So join me in saying this, can we? Can we all say together, even if we don't see it, God is working for the ultimate good. One more time. Even if we don't see it, God is working for the ultimate good. And that's the gospel. So how in our story is God working for the ultimate good? I think for Abraham and Abimelech, it makes sense. Like, we can kind of figure that one out easily. Abraham is supposed to get Sarah pregnant, so that way Isaac can be born within the next year. And so God needed to do something to make sure that Sarah didn't get pregnant by another man or do anything that would make the paternal heritage of Isaac in question. And so God intervenes, and that's all good, and... Um, Abraham is able to build a relationship with the Bimelech. They're going to be able to be partners and friends later on down the line. Um, I don't know if we'll cover that story or not, but he's going to live in Abimelech's land for some time, and they're going to work together to build wells and just be partners. Um, Isaac is going to be conceived. Sarah's going to be a mom through her husband. She's not going to be abused. But what about Lot and his daughters? Where's the good news in that story? Well, remember how the Moabites are not supposed to be married with, or, and they're not supposed to enter the temple? In that confusing way of God of setting up hurdles just so he can cross them later, that's exactly what he does. We see uh, down the family line, anybody know who Ruth is? Let's bring up her picture. Ruth is a Moabitess. She is, on that right there, one of the great-great-grandchildren of Lot and his daughter. And Ruth marries the Israelite Boaz, and through many generations later, it's not on here, we see David come out of their marriage, the most, one of the most important kings of Israel. And through David's lineage, who comes born out of David's line? Jesus. All right, Sunday school, good job. <laughs> Jesus. Somehow this father-daughter incest 
is going to pass its DNA down through generations to become the Messiah. The Christ is going to come out of this illicit, wrong, sexually assaulted rape union. So I don't know what the good news is for Lot and his daughters in their lives. They become mothers. Um, but in the big picture, there's a redemption that happens. God has used that to show that even an illicit union like that cannot truly be evil and wrong because such good has come from it. So, God stands against evil and he molds it into good. Hit that slide a few more times, Kyle. Yeah, I'm gonna hit it again. But what about for me? It's hard to judge my own story, but one thing that has happened is, uh, you know, I worked with college students for a number of years and was a college minister, and I've gotten to share my testimony about what happened with that older youth and um, how I was abused and shared my experience uh, at a number of times. And every single time I've shared that story, there's somebody who comes to talk to me afterwards, sometimes multiple people, to tell me that they've experienced something similar, that they have suffered in the ways I've suffered. And a lot of times I'm the first person that they've ever told. I don't know why God continues to allow sexual abuse to happen, but I like to think that part of my experience has been able to use to help heal others and begin them on a journey of confession, not because they've done something wrong, but because they just need to process and deal with this, to acknowledge something that's happened in their life, to be able to hear a word of grace that they are not the sinners, but they were sinned against. So I don't know why God let that happen to me, but even though it was evil, I have been able to use it for good in my days. And I don't know how God is working in the life of my abuser either. I still pray for him. I actually tried to reach out a few years ago and he totally blew me off, which is understandable. <laughs> but I still pray for him and hope and wonder how God is redeeming him too. So let's go to these last few slides. Yeah. So just a reminder, God stands against evil and he molds it into good. Evil that has happened to us, evil that we have caused in cases where we have been the abusers and have severely, seriously wronged and injured people. God redeems even that. Evil we've witnessed and done nothing to prevent. When we were bystanders and know we should have stepped up and said or did something at the time, but we didn't. Even that, God is redeeming and molding into good. We've all been sinned against and we've all sinned against others and we've all failed to stop sin. And yet none of that is enough to stop God's ultimate plan of redemption. 
Christ has still risen from the dead, no matter how much you or I have failed ourselves or others. God is redeeming our brokenness to bring about ultimate healing and good. And so if we believe that God is redeeming brokenness to bring about ultimate healing and good, instead of reflection, I have a couple application things for this week, and I want to see if we can redeem some of Lot and Abraham's decisions here. Let's try and apply redemption to Lot and Abraham's mistakes. So Abraham and Lot both move after Sodom is destroyed, right? They both exhibit fear of pagans, and they both commit incest. So how can we redeem that? Let's see first. All right. So in lieu of moving when there's destruction and chaos, take your concerns about evil and God to the Lord directly. Instead of fearing and fleeing, what does it look like to come to God with the things that you're concerned about? Instead of fearing pagans, whatever our modern pagans are, the people that you believe could never have the Spirit of God in them. Could be people part of the LGBT community, could be conservatives, could be whoever the other is that you really don't believe are walking in step with the Lord. Let God surprise you. Abraham, remember, the reason he said he had to lie to Abimelech was because he knew there was no fear of God in this place. That's his quote. But yet, when Abimelech gets a dream from God, what does Abimelech do? He goes out of his way to make it right. He tells his household, and even his servants are afraid. So there's an irony in that what Abraham perceived as reality, that these pagan foreigners don't have a fear of God, was actually the opposite of the truth, that they actually feared God perhaps more than Abraham did in that circumstance. And so who do you think couldn't have the Spirit of God? Confess that to God and ask God to give you grace to see others with his eyes and maybe even let them surprise you. And the last thing, redeeming the incest, is address your sexual hang-ups. Um, we all have them. We're all broken, I think, in this fear in some way. Um, it's a part of our job to work on that. It's a little bit hard because there is a taboo around it, especially in the church. But um, if you've never talked to anyone about ways you've struggled with your sexual hang-ups or baggage in the past, I encourage you to talk to someone, be it a spouse, pastor, a trusted friend. Um, get counseling help if you need. Uh, I've been to see therapists who specialize in like sexual problems and brokenness because of my background. I can help you find resources like that. And I also have access to Christian counseling resources as well, if that's something you'd be seeking. Um, and then just like for us parents in the room, this is more just my like thing because the person who abused me was the person who taught me about sex. And when they had started introducing me to the concept, I asked my parents and they gave me a book. And I think a lot of, like, I would have been better prepared if I had been able to have an honest conversation with them about questions and things. Um, because that's the reality, is if 
parents, if we don't tell our kids about sex and teach them about it, they're going to learn somewhere, and it might not be the best uh, or most trusted source. Um, this is especially scary in our day and age. Like, when I started in college ministry, one of like, my early trainings was that we were taught that the average age for pornography exposure was 11 years old. But, like, that, that kids were 11 when they first saw pornography these days. And that was back in 2015, eight years ago. So I don't, I'm sure the age is much lower now. Access to screens and technology. Um, we can pretend like these things don't happen, but it is happening. And so we just have to be more aware and conscious and just make sure that we are preparing our kids for like the things they're going to see and hopefully being that person that they can go to rather than the internet or somebody older who doesn't have their best interest at heart. That's all I have for today, guys. Um, I want to just thank you for your time and leave you with a few seconds to just dwell on... Oh, you can leave that last slide up. Um, just dwell on, like, what does it look like for you this week to... What are you afraid of that you need to tell God? Who do you think couldn't be with God? What do you need to do to just kind of address some of your baggage? And we'll come back for communion. So, thank you guys. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.